Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Working Audio Tools podcast with myself, Ed Thorne, my co-host, Paul Third, and yet another special guest, this time all the way over from the States. Thank you to DistroKid for sponsoring this podcast. You can get 30% off your first year subscription with DistroKid uh, that Paul and myself actually use for our own musical distribution. There'll be a VIP link to that in the podcast show notes and the YouTube description. Before we get into the episode, though, we need you. We need your help because we need artists to mix and feature on this podcast. The podcast is documenting mine and Paul's journey to becoming full-time mix engineers. And to do that, we need a lot of practice. If you've heard previous episodes, you'll know that Paul and I are comparing and critiquing each other's mixes. It's a really fantastic learning tool for both of us. And we think it's a very engaging concept. So listen to last week's episode, for example, and next week's episode where we have mixes uh you can feel free to leave your comments uh underneath the videos but please be kind it's too easy to troll on youtube uh, and we don't like that kind of stuff so if you are interested in being featured please drop us a line on instagram follow us on instagram at working audio tools and we will listen to your submissions and we'll get back to you if we'd if we think we can get something positive out of the mix and by that i don't just mean we want to get a flawless sounding mix Something that we can get our teeth into, something that's a challenge for us possibly as well. Something that we can talk about and engage with you guys on as well. With that said, Paul, please can you introduce this week's guest? Hello, everyone. This week, we have got another guest on the Working Audio Tools podcast. He's also a fellow YouTuber like ourselves, but he is way, way, way more um, than a YouTuber. He is what we want to be, (laughs) which is a full-time mixing and mastering engineer. Uh, let me introduce you all to Matty Harris. Matty, how are you doing this fine, well, as we say fine evening, it's evening for us, it's afternoon for you, so how are you doing this fine afternoon? I'm doing great. I'm over here in LA. It, it is noon exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, just got, I was in the East Coast and I just got back. So I'm in like three different time zones already today. <laughs> the jet lag hitting you hard, is it? <laughs> no, it's only three hours. The Europe to here is the nightmare. <laughs> oh yeah, we know all about that. I was yeah. our trip to LA I'm was sure an absolute nightmare. <laughs> oh, well, it's it's rough. It's rough. Tell us a little bit. Tell us, but tell the audience um, a little bit about you and um, how you started in the industry, how you kind of cut your teeth, and how you ended up going from Boston, Massachusetts, all the way to LA. Which is how long have you been in LA now? I've been here 13 years wow. this this month, I think, actually, or last month. Yeah, yeah, 13 years. Um. Yeah, I started out, uh, I l- grew up in New England, uh, Maine, and then Boston, and um, I played I played drums. I started playing drums. I got into music early. Uh, I wasn't a sports guy. I just, I, I couldn't even catch a ball. So, you know, sports music be- kind of became the thing. I was a big kid who couldn't play sports. And so I started, you know, getting into music, playing drums and stuff. And then I would, you know, record my friends, and, and I'm a bit older, so we would have tape decks, and we'd record, like, one, you know, the drums, and then take another tape deck and bring it back and record the bass and like go back and forth. And I always found that st- stuff really interesting. Um, and then, you know, uh, came, came time to go to college or, or, or not. And I, I applied to one school cause I didn't really go, want to go anywhere else. I just wanted to go drum and, and I applied to Berkeley school of music in Boston and, and got in. And then, you know, I got there and it's, it's, uh, it's such a competitive school, you know, it's, it, I thought, you know, I, I grew up in New England. I was, I, I won like awards and like, you know, best drummer of New England for jazz band and stuff like that. And I thought I was like the best, you know what I mean? And then I got to Berkeley, which has the best across the world. And I was like, I'm an okay drummer. <laughs> like, I'm not the best. 
This sounds like my <laughs> journey coming from Sheffield to London. Yeah, I, I, I can relate. Yeah. I actually considered going to Berkeley when I was about seventeen, but the, yep. the prices were astronomical compared to UK tuition. Oh, I bet it's insane. I mean, it took me a very—I mean, I had a little bit of a scholarship, but I, I, you know, it took me a very long time uh, to pay that to pay that one off. Yeah. So, like I said, I, as I got there, you know, I, I realized jazz drumming is probably not going to be my full-time career. And the good thing is, is, is from, you know, recording me and my friends as we grew up, I was really inter- interested in the audio world too. And so I applied to get into their music production engineering program. You know, I started just learning, you know, all the tools of the trade from some amazing people there, you know, while I was at school, they told you, you know, they told us you would need to intern at some point, And that's how you kind of move your way up was interning at studios. And, and so I started doing that while I was at Berkeley. It was it was kind of fun because as as I moved up the little intern ladder, I would I'd be in sessions with like some of my teachers <laughs> as they were coming over to the studio I was working at. It worked out really well. Is 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 right when I was kind of graduating college, one of the main engineers was moving back to Chicago, and they needed a guy to kind of fill in on the late night sessions, and and I got the gig, and uh, you know I just started engineering from from there basically, you know doing a lot of recording and stuff like that. So um, how long and- would you say it took you? Till you got to the point where you were kind of you know comfortable because i know that um when i left uni i was nowhere near ready to go out and do it on my own when you leave uni you're like yeah, yeah this is great yeah, i've got a degree and then um look at me yeah. now like 10 years later <laughs> and that's me just now yeah. trying to become full-time I still don't think I've gotten there yet. <laughs> no, it was crazy, man. So I, you know, I'm 44 years old. So I came up right at the time where tape was heading out the door and Pro Tools was coming in. I learned Pro Tools because I knew it could help me get my foot in the door and it, and it actually did. And it was kind of the reason, only reason I think they gave me like an engineering job at this studio is because I could work the computer in the Pro Tools system. But when I first started, it was freaking insane because they were still using tape machines, but then they were syncing Pro Tools with it too. And then all the like MIDI stuff was done on a different machine. So you would have to put like SMPTE from the tape machine, send it to the Pro Tools computer and send it to this other computer that would then send MIDI to the drum machines oh. and, and hope to God you could hit play and they would all start together, yeah. right? And so I would have to do that with like a, a rap group of like 20 people in the studio. You know what I mean? Like the pressure was like insane. And, they, and they'd be like, why isn't this working? Because I, I was like lost. You know what I mean? I would like try to get it going and so, like one thing goes wrong and nothing's going to play. You know, that really pushed me to like get good at all of it. You know what I mean? And so like when there weren't sessions, I'd get into the studio, even if it was late night and just really get this craft down of, of being able to get things onto tape in a good way, in a fast way, and then be able to record people and all that stuff. So I would say a good six months of that, I mean, super pressure helped me move along quite mm-hmm. fast to the point where I at least felt comfortable in the studio when a client came in and I felt like I could record them and, and, and get them out the door with at the time a CD, you know? Of at least a rough mix of what they recorded. Um, so, you know, like every, everyone's journey is different, how that happens. But I think I was just so scared to death of like, <laughs> like <laughs> things imagine. going wrong. <laughs> yeah, that I just I had to like adapt fast 
or I would get fired. And 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 I I was told later on by one of the senior engineers, like I was this close to like <laughs> losing the gig because I was just, I mean, I was I was lost. You know what I mean? It was I was so new. I was I was probably too new to be in that position. So but, how um, did you move it, from uh, from there to LA? Or was there something in between? Yeah, so I was in Boston working at all the the big studios in Boston for about ten years, actually. Right. And then, um, you know, I had some good successes there. there Boston was known for like uh, a fairly well for like underground hip hop music, and so did a lot of like underground hip hop stuff with with some like cool artists there. And then this kid named Sammy Adams came to the studio, and we worked on this record. And um, and like I didn't think. Like I thought it was a good album. I was like, "This is cool. It's a cool independent artist." And um, but I didn't think much of it. Uh, it's like you know, because like when in Boston, it's a small market, so everything you do doesn't usually like blow up. You know what I mean? It's a lot of like medium level artists that you know like have like a small cult following type thing. So this kid ended up like blowing up and like ended up being like the first. I think one of the first independent artists to go number one on iTunes. When that happened, every label in the world started mm. calling and they like shipped us out to LA. And um and on that album, I mixed and mastered it, but I also co-produced it with Sammy too. Um, because he was pretty new at making beats and stuff. And I, I, I've been making beats as well for a long time. And so we 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 did a lot of it together. And then, you know, so I got shit. We all went out to LA and like the stuff you hear of like happens. Like we got picked up in a limo <laughs> and we went to Conway studios, which is probably still my favorite studio in Los Angeles. And like, you know, like, like I walked up to the soda machine and like, like B.O.B. at the time, the rapper B.O.B. Mm -hmm. was there like getting a soda. And I was like, Oh, like, this is crazy. Like we freaking made it, dude. Like, this is it. Like the, you know what I mean? And, uh, there was an option that, to like get a publishing deal and come out here or just stay in Boston and be happy and, you know, keep working on independent artists and all that. And I was like, dude, like if it's ever going to happen, I got to take this like plunge now, you know? So I got out, I said, let's do it. You know, I'm going to sign a publishing deal. That will be my money. And, and, um, and plus this independent label was going to pay me to come be like the engineer for a year or two. So it was like the greatest way to get out to LA. And so, and so I did it. I took the plunge and like left, like whatever, everything I built in Boston and just like said, I'm going to LA. And so we got out here and like the first year was pretty good because that label was paying me to engineer and help out. But then Sammy decided not to sign to a major and then he did. And then everything got separated and, and the whole thing kind of fell apart. And then the next thing you know, it's like the year after I'm in LA, still waiting for this publishing deal to get signed. And like, I'm just broke out here, like trying to figure it all out. And so I had a studio, I was like sleeping in it. And, and finally the publishing deal went through and things kind of started calming down at that point, you know, um, as far as, you know, starting to find artists to work with and, and stuff like that. In regards to say like the difference between the scene of say like going from Boston LA um even is there even like a different style of mixing I'm just thinking kind of the stories that you hear you know like you had the, the you had the New York guys and you had the London guys and uh, was there a sim that you had to adapt to because I know even guys like Spike Stent when they moved across there was a like it was a London UK sim and he had to change kind of his sim to adapt did you have to adapt I, I didn't feel so like I mean, I understand with the spike thing because I think the music's mixed a little bit. Not yeah. so much nowadays, but it was back then in in, in the UK than in the States. Um, but I was already kind of working on a lot of the newer style music. Uh, so so it wasn't too much of a problem to kind of like adapt mm -hmm. to LA. Like the culture adaption was 
was very different, you know, yeah. and, and, and the way everything works out here was super different because everybody's like talking a good game in LA, like, yeah, we found that and that. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, and it took, it took a while to figure out what was real and what was not and what you should spend your time on and, and all that stuff. You know what I mean? My, I have um, a, a question, a question I've, I've not really asked many people, but I think this would be a great opportunity. Say like when you're working with independent labels, uh, how different yeah. is it um, working with independent labels to a major label? Like I've, uh, that's the one thing I've never had any experience with. Is, it, is, there, is, there, is there a big difference or is there any adjustments or just in terms of the way that they want the files um, delivered or just like the way that the ANRs are are they picky like is, is what is it like to mix for uh, labels the fees yeah uh, it's way better <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding no. <laughs> so, so so like I would say 80% of my work is independent labels and artists and then 20% is major label stuff right right the cool thing about with when you're working with an indie artist or indie label is a lot of times it is like you're one-on-one with the artist a lot of times you know like you guys are talking about the mix and there's not a whole lot of other people involved maybe the producer right the artist the producer and you and so it, it's cool in that fact that it's just a, a few of you working right on the major label side it's usually the a and r who reaches out to me 80 percent of the time i probably don't even talk to the artist right, you know what i mean yeah. and so it's like the a and r reaches out hey we want you to work on you know try this project work on this project and then you know we start working on it i send it to him and then either he just send he or she or whatever they send me back notes, or maybe the producer comes on the the chat and we all start talking and possibly the artist. But it's so rare for some reason with the major labels that you actually end up talking to the artist. That's weird. Um, I never would have thought that. In my, in I my never experience, that, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, in my experience, it's usually the A and R for sure I'm dealing with, and then probably possibly the producer, depending on who the producer is if it's like a bigger producer who's hmm. pretty like well involved then yeah you're probably going to be on the email chain with him if it's like a what i'd like to call like a beat maker or someone who yeah. just made the track and doesn't really care after that you probably won't be talking to them you'll just be talking to the a and r the working audio tools podcast is brought to you in association with our friends at DistroKid for all of your musical distribution needs don't forget you can't just upload your songs to amazon spotify itunes or tidal you have to go through a music distribution service there are many out there but DistroKid is the one that paul and myself use they don't take any of your royalties you keep 100 of the streaming revenue that you earn for just $1.92 a month or $22.99 a year you can upload unlimited songs your lyrics can be found in google and other places you get the blue spotify verified checkmark and you can create royalty splits between yourselves and fellow contributors you also get access to the new distrokid iphone app for editing and uploading songs and accessing your statistics on the move. There are plenty of other tools available on DistroKid. We'll go through those in another section. And in regards to the um, feedback, is, it, is there different feedback in regards to dealing with an A&R as opposed to, say, dealing with an artist? Do you find that the A&Rs are sometimes just like, yeah, vocal up, drums up, like barking vocals a little bit more, where an artist could maybe be a little bit more particular? I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. You know, and it, it, it totally depends. A lot of, you know, a lot of A&Rs, when they got to that position, like, they're pretty like they're pretty good at listening to music. I'm not going to, mm. like, try to take anything away, because some people give A&Rs a bad name, you know? They know what they're talking about, you know what I mean? They know what makes a good song, and so the A&R's notes are usually pretty pretty good. 
the artist is always interesting because sometimes it's like really easy and they're just like, this is great. Sometimes you'll get a ton of notes. And I found, I found that a lot of times when you get a ton of notes from artists, it might not be the song. It might be like a psychological thing where like they're not comfortable with their voice a hundred percent yet. And so they're trying to over top compensate for what, what like they don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. with it. And, and one of the sure signs, sure signs of that is like, more reverb, more delays, more this, more that. And it's like, you Watch don't feel comfortable with your voice. Yeah, yeah. Because honestly, if you listen to like most of the records on the radio, they're dry as a bone mm -hmm. as far as reverb. You know, it's there's delays used more than reverbs. And, and unless it's like a post record or something like where it's part of the vocal sound, mm -hmm. you know, so like a lot of times it's it's like a psychological thing with the artist where it's like, listen, man, like you sound really good. Like you don't need all that to make this work, you know? And, and so, so that's where the difference can be with the A&R, the, the emotional side of it is maybe not so entangled as it is with the actual singer or, or songwriter or, or whatever it is you're dealing with just the artist. Now you also mentioned fees and deliverables and stuff like that. The, the fee thing is mostly when I'm working with independents, I ask for the money before we start mixing. Mm -hmm. Unless it's someone I've been working for a long time. Like I have like artists like a Cam Meekins who, who I work with a lot. And he's like become a friend, you know, and he, he was signed to Atlantic and then he wanted to get out of his deal, which is something you see a lot of times these days is artists don't even want to be in their deal anymore. And um, we work a lot together and, and I'm just like, pay me whenever, you know, so it like kind of depends. I would say if, you know, if you're working with an independent artist for the first time, just try to get paid before you start, at least get half, mm -hmm. half up front. With the labels, you do all the work, you send every damn deliverable they want, and then you have to send an invoice, and then like in a month and a half, you'll get paid, hopefully. And obviously, the labels do charge quite a bit more money than you can for an independent artist who might be paying you know, out of their pocket or whatnot. You do have to do a lot more work with the labels, especially when it comes to deliverables. They want you know all the different versions. They, all, they need stems in a specific way now because the whole Atmos yeah. thing going on. Um, so, you know, you can spend hours just getting the deliverables together for the label after you do the mix and or master. Um, whereas a lot of times the independent artist just needs like a, a show track and a mix, you know, and like maybe like a year later they call you and say, Hey, I actually need the stems cause I'm going to the road and so forth and so on. So it's a lot more looser and relaxed with independent artists, which I actually prefer, um, where the labels, it's like, you know, th there might be a lot of people. On, on the email chain with a lot of different notes and different ideas. Because sometimes you can have like two A&Rs and like a producer and then the songwriter, you know, sometimes it gets super complicated like that. And I, and the higher up the food chain, the, the artist is a, is a priority, more and more people will get on the email chain, you know? Then it's like, well, this guy wants that and this guy wants that. And you're like, you know, at revision 17 because everyone's got an idea of what they think the song should be, you know? So it can get complicated. And how do you Are deal you with the politics side of it? Because we speak a lot to engineers about, you know, when you might have a difference of opinion, you know, if maybe you're like, no, what, I'm actually really happy with what I've done here, or no, the bass should sit this way. Or how is it difficult to deal with, you know, as you said, so many cooks in the kitchen and you start here and you think it's okay and then all of a sudden you're kind of drafted over here and then oh no we we'll want to move over here and he says this how do you deal with all that communication yeah. and I, I find that a nightmare yeah i just i mean i, I always say it's like you just got to completely put your ego to the side mm -hmm. my version one is how i think the mix should sound right 
That's my representation of your song. And then after that, it's your song. You know, I'm not going to sit there and be like, no, you know, like <laughs> I made the bass sound this way and I had it through a freaking tube tech and it, there's no way it could sound better. Like, I'm not going to do that. Like, it's your song and whatever you want changed, I'll change it. Now, I might say, hey, you know, like we could maybe do it this way or that way. And by bringing your bass up 10 dB, it might make your whole mix sound muddy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's totally up to you if you want to do that. I'm just letting you know, you know? Yeah. So, like, stuff like that, um, I think there's, like, you know, an elegant way to, to to say things if you really think it's too far gone. But, but you know, not, nine times out of ten, it's, it's a lot of just small notes. Like, mm-hmm. I want the vocal up 2 dB here, and, you know, I wanted that echo that you put at three minutes to be 2 dB louder. It's like... A lot of stuff like that, unless you get into a nightmare session where they're just like, you know, want to re-record things and send new vocal files, which which happens too, you know? Especially nowadays, you just got to be flexible for whatever comes, you know? You can do so much now with the tools we have, but I think it's also like a curse too, because you can do so much yeah. with the tools we have. Totally, I get what that you That like, the, the song can never be done sometimes, you know? Are you in so, the yeah, box that's... or are you hybrid? I'm hybrid, but if I'm being completely honest these days... um. I'm 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 like ninety percent in the box. More hybrid when I'm mixing than when I'm mastering. A lot of times when I'm mastering, the mix is so dialed in. Even just going out through the converters can change the sound, right? Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times it can it cannot kill transients, but sometimes just it makes it a little bit less edgy, right? Mm-hmm. And if people are so used to like kind of this precise thing, it can kind of take away from then add to by going outside of the box. I tend to master more so in the box, but a lot of times I'll try something. Like I was just mastering for this new artist and I ran something through and I didn't like it. So I'm, I went back to the box, you know, mm-hmm. most of my analog stuff's more for color or, you know, some cool like sound. Like I have like the silver bullet and then this tube tech, which is really great for um, a really great EQ and, you know, stuff like that that just kind of changed the vibe of a song is, is, is when I tend to use it. Are you still using the, the, the Silver Bullet hardware? Or because I watched your video about the plugin, <laughs> yeah. and you were pretty, pretty upset. I know, it's so annoying. <laughs> oh, it's so annoying. It hasn't been getting used as much lately. Is it not? Right? I actually, it's funny because I, uh, I really like the aspect ratio on the Silver Bullet for a little bit of width. And so I was just using that actually, just that mm-hmm. for this master. It's weird. Sometimes, like the the width stuff, sounds better analog than it does in the box. Do you think that's because well, a lot I, of the times you might have a bit of like left and right tolerance? Again, the left that one hundred percent. Yeah, you can find that with analog. Eh? But again, if there's the the left and right tolerances are a little bit off, then again, you're going to have more side signal, and then yeah. it could kind of add yeah. this width, which could be a really really cool effect. And I didn't realize yeah. that until I got into the whole analog thing and I've seen the tolerances for myself and you go, ah, oh, that's, yeah. that's where the width can come yeah. from. And it's like so, so easy. You know, I, and that's, I totally think that, you know, so many people when you read online, like it's wider and this, it's, it's just that, that's <laughs> yeah. what's happening. You're totally. putting it through your converters and it's, but yeah, I mean, I think dude, I think like plugins are so good now mm-hmm. and like, and then with the way revisions come now and like, the amount of work you have to do like i got so many mixes going throughout a week you have to move quick and like yeah. and i feel i got to a point where i was like i think the analog like on my mix bus specifically is making this worse than better because i might forget like the setting and then i switch yeah. to the mix and i recall the older mix and then i haven't had and i'm like oh man i had this whole other mix i don't even remember what the eq was like so i would have like a setting just for this eq and that was what i would run it through so i wouldn't change it ever 
But then mm-hmm. it's like, well, you're you're not doing anything. You're just running it through this machine, and it's it's not like you don't have free reign to change it. So that's why I just think like sometimes like um in the box is better. It, it, it sounds just as good now. It's just different. Yeah, than that's a analog. good term. That's a great term. But like, but like, I I feel like you just you you're more you have more freedom in the box, you know. Mm, Except like the better, like I have a bunch of the Better Maker stuff, which I will use for mastering quite a bit, and that stuff's great because it recalls on its own, you know. Are you the same as Waddle? Because we found I know you've not watched the Waddle one yet, but he was talking about the Better Maker. Uh, it was either the limiter or the compressor, and he was saying that there was there's I think there's a setting that he has, and he went. If Waddle can't get it in the box, <laughs> nobody can get it in the box. What is it about the Better Maker stuff? Because I know that I've you've talked about it a lot on your channel. What is yeah. it about the Better Maker stuff that kind of draws you to it? I mean, the first thing was that it was recallable, yeah, right? Totally. It's instant. It's all instantly recallable analog, which is like huge in its own. I like to say like there's a clean expensiveness to the Better Maker stuff that I like. That's the only one I've ever really been able to describe it. And then it's just it's it's useful. Like the limiter. The the mastering limiter. Um, sometimes the clipping just sounds better. If I mean, if you're going to clip, which I don't have to that much these days, but sometimes it will sound better than the digital clippers, you know, because mm-hmm. it just adds a thing. And then and then it has um, some different saturation settings you can use. I hate the the. Um, I think it's the odd one. It's it's too much. Mm-hmm. I, they have a new limiter. I don't know if you fixed it or not, but the odd the uh, I know the even. Uh, saturation was just way too much like 10 percent, and it's like to store it in the master yeah i never understood that one but the even the odd one um can like just open up a mix sometimes if you use it on the uh the like like four thousand hertz or something and we'll just help like give it a sparkle which and but it's not eq it's just a little bit of saturation in that range and so that thing's awesome for that and then uh the their eq is great because it has ms uh, capability mm. And it's got a pool tech and then a, you know a bunch of others. It's just really flexible and, and it sounds good. I, I think that's you know, the best way to say it. I've always wondered um, um, how the guys managed to do it back in the day. When you think about Clear Mountain and CLA, like and you used to see the recall sheets. I was like, oh my god, because you could never yeah. get it perfect, could you? The mix that you had on a Tuesday, if you had to recall everything on a Thursday and put everything back, it would sound different, wouldn't it? Like you would never. Oh get, yeah, yeah, yeah. No way. I mean, just the the, the room-changing temperature can change Correct. the way something sounds, you know? So I don't know. I mean, I think I think back in the day, too, they just took, you know, version one. Yeah, true. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't around L.A. for those times, but I can only imagine. It must have been insane. Would you be able to tell yeah. me, like, there's, I found it funny, and I know you'll know what I'm on about, because i seen a meme on Instagram, and uh, Ed was chuckling at it, and it was basically an L.A. mixer's uh, starter pack and it had the DW, DW Fern Red Full Tech, <laughs> <laughs> a Tube Tech, CL1B, yeah. and I think it was 1176 yeah. as well. Do you yeah. know why, <laughs> especially the DW Fern, why that's in so many Mixer Studios? Like, it was like everywhere that we went. I do know why. I don't know if I want to say so on here, but <laughs> but John Costelli actually, I, I give John Costelli all the credit for the DW Fern beginnings because I think he was one of the first guys out here to start using it. Mm-hmm. And then you know, there's some guys around who who uh, who really like the gear and 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 sh- you know, give it to other guys. And, and and I think maybe that's probably how it all happened. But I still to this day haven't even used one, which if you know, you know, except except the Ruby from Acoustica, which yeah. I've heard from one guy sounds just like it, and another guy sounds <laughs> nothing like it. So yeah, there's a collaboration for you guys on YouTube. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? I know. And in terms of mastering, um, do you have like multiple limiters that you go to, or you kind of got like a set limiter? Is it like ozone? Is it like um, fab filter, or do you kind of alternate? So ninety nine percent of the time, I use fab filter and ozone. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, my dog's scratching. Can you guys hear that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, stop, dude. We're trying to do this podcast. All right, maybe he'll stop. Kind of dog, is it? Right, I'll start. Huh? What kind? Yeah. Oh, it's just a a little uh, lapso opso. He's just trying to make himself comfortable. Can you stop, dude? Okay, he's good. Yeah, so I, I mostly, 99% of the time, I use the, the fab filter in the ozone. I do tend to sometimes try out Limitless, and that's like save the day sometimes. And then what's the other one that saves the day sometimes? That the um, Is it Newfangle Audio? Oh, yeah, is it Elevate? Is that the one? Elevate, yeah, 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 yeah that one. That one's awesome sometimes, too. And then Standard Clip is used from time to time. That's usually more for like stuff that needs to get louder. That's that like people really just want freaking loud. A lot of times, mm-hmm. like dance music stuff, that could be super helpful for. Um, what um, have I you started have playing you, with that gold you, clip clipper a bit? Have you tried? Oh, is that the Schwab Digital? One? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, is that is that the one that's based? Is that based on the Lavery? Or is that different? It's, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, it's funny. I don't. I I haven't found like I tend to use it just as a clipper. I haven't really been using the the color options. Yeah. Um, and I'll shoot that out against standard clip. And sometimes that one actually beats standard clip, which I, to me, standard clips, like the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. It's been getting used for uh, years. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, I haven't found anything better, but. See, in terms of like the whole hip hop thing. Now, obviously when I listen to hip hop, I always imagine 808s and I imagine like a ton, a ton of low end. See, in regards to say like a mastering and especially like on your mix bus, how do you personally manage that um that amount of low end and is there kind of like a set not set luffs but are you normally like what is it at hip hop is it minus six minus seven minus eight is it quite loud like how do you deal with that amount of low end but also trying to get to that loudness as well it all has to do with the kick and the bass to me it's you got to pick like who's going to be the winner right? right and so is the kick and is the kick the focus of the song or is the 808 the focus of the song and then you can like from there you can figure out what's you know what to do from there like I learned a lot. I actually went to the mix with the Masters with Jason Joshua. Yeah, we did. We went to Abbey Road. It was amazing. Oh, you went to the last yeah. one? I went to the first one, and then I got to know Jay, and I've gotten to learn a lot from him just being out here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like as you know, he, he uh, sidechains the 808, yeah. the 808 from the kick. And that's a great way to achieve the loudness because, you know, you're, you're not bringing so much low end in. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the other thing is, is, is like, I see a lot of people just putting shitload of plugins on their 808 and like thinking that's going to help it and stuff. But I think sometimes just letting the 808 breathe, how it was delivered mm-hmm. can work just as well, you know, and, and then shaping the kick in the bass frequency wise, just to stay out of the kick in the 808, sorry, just to stay out of each other's way. I think it's all just EQ really. Or side chain compression if if it works for that song. But you know, sometimes with with you do like what Jay does, like he uses like I mean, I'm sure people know on videos, like he'll take Sooth two and frequency yeah. bring take a frequency dependent and bring down the kick frequency where it's hitting. Now, sometimes I found that that kind of loses some of the soul of the song. And so I just won't do it, you know, and just kind of try to figure out frequency wise how to make room. Doing it do those two things. And they sound simpler than like making it really difficult. And like mm-hmm. I use like 60 plugins on the 808 to make it work that way. Yeah. It's just, you know, just EQ, you know, and, and, and level and, and who's going to win and, and what frequencies you're going to pull from either instrument to make it so that it gets to the mix bus and isn't blowing out the mix bus. Mm-hmm. 
With someone like Jason in mind, what's the LA scene like in terms of engineers being protective of information and clients? I mean, Jason's obviously doing the mix with the masters stuff. You get a, you get a slight hint that he's not quite giving away everything, but he's he's giving away a lot. Some people say he is giving away everything. How, how, what are your thoughts on that? How do you feel? You know, what is Jason like to interact with? You know, are you, are you texting him on a weekly basis. You know, hey man, I've got this problem. What do you suggest? Yeah, no, no, I don't text somebody weekly basis. We usually hit Jay up. Uh, we'll talk about new plugins and stuff like that, and then I'll go up. I go up every. I probably go up once or twice a year to his place and just hang and you know see what's going on. And he did give everything away. I mean, I've sat in there for 10 hours and watched him mix, you know, a couple songs. And the same thing you saw on all the videos. Yeah, all the game stage and stuff, a, yeah. Yeah, but it's just, that's all cool. But his ear, man, his ear is what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. That guy can hear, like, low-end frequencies. Like, I don't know, he's like, just, he finds them, you know. But, yeah, I mean, as far as, like, you know, I, I always, like, joke with, like, people. Like, I'm, I tell them I'm a B-list mixer, you know, like, because, like, <laughs> because there's, like, Jay and there's Serb and there's Manny and there's, like, and Spike and, like, a few other guys. And then there's everybody else, you know. And I, I, I maybe I should even say I'm, like, a C or D-list mixer because, like, there's a, some B guys that after that, that that are better or more plugged in, depending which way you look at it. You know, and I'm sure it, it happens, you know what I mean? I've heard stories of, you know guys pulling off other guys from from getting the mix and you know it's, it's business you know it's mm-hmm. like when i actually i was in berkeley i took a business course like a music business course and the guy said something that's always stuck with me he says we are in the music business if you take away the music what are we in we are in business nowadays especially you got to be able to wear both hats and like you know be the business guy and be the music guy and know when to turn one or the other off and i think jay is really good at that as well mm-hmm. You know, I think if you just do a really good job, you'll get hired for another job. And that's how it works. You know, I, I, I really believe that, like, you know, cream rises to the top. And if you do a good job, people are going to ask you to do another job at some point, you know. And you never know when that record is going to be a smash. And then that smash takes you on a ride for three years, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's how Jay or Sir or any of these guys have, have uh, lasted so long because... You know, they they mixed the Smash record and then they got another Smash record that year. And, oh, wow, this guy's mixed these two records. Like, send them everything, you know, yeah. and that's how it works. So th- somebody said once, like, you're only as good as your last hit or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think that's true. Like, I worked on this record with um artist named Huddy and Travis Barker played drums on it. Like, dude, that brought in so much work just from working on that. And that record didn't even get that huge, you know. It's all about, like, what you worked on last week that helps what you're going to work on this week. I am very, very, very sorry to interrupt this episode, but it is time for another featured plugin of the week. And this week, I want to show you how you can use Sonable Smart EQ to not only tonally balance your sources, but also deal with frequency clashing, especially when you've got sources like guitars that come from the same amp, same guitar sounds stacked on top of each other. Now, this is a multi track from the future, as we've already. Uh, mixed this song and it will be featured on next week's episode. What you're about to hear is the drums, bass and guitars without any processing on them whatsoever.
Now, hopefully what you can hear there is that the guitars are now way less harsh in the mid-range, and I think they sit really nice in the track, and they're just not as abrasive as they were without Smarty Q. The only issue that I think we still have is that the guitars, especially in the chorus, they, they do stack up on top of each other, and it's very hard to try and kind of pick out certain elements, kind of give them their space. Now, obviously, you could play about with panning, but, you know, when you've got so much frequency clashing going on, it can be difficult. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you Smart EQ's group function, which I think is a diamond feature and a feature that I've used many, many times in the past. I specifically bust the guitar elements in the way that they sit in the mix, almost like their structural progression in the way that they come in in the song. And what I'm using the group function for in Smart EQ is to give them a priority. So when the chorus kicks in, I want the lead parts to take priority over the acoustic guitar and kind of the verse electric guitars. And hopefully what you'll hear is a bit of separation. And all in all, I think it just makes the guitars sound less of like a cohesive mess and gives them a little bit of structure and priority. And there you have it, SmartEQ, a very, very innovative tool, and if used correctly, could be a diamond tool and save you a ton of times in your mixing. Now, let's get back to the episode. So how does it work with record labels? Because it's my understanding you have the singles are mixed by the celebrity engineers and then the rest is shared by a few other people. Uh, I know a, well, I know of a guy in London who has mixed you a leap of stuff but he's not done the singles as far as I know. How do you, how do you even get to that level? Uh, I don't know, man. It's just, I mean, I think you meet people and like, like, like I work a lot with my buddy Anthony. Um, and so we did a lot of the, the Huddy record together with, with, with Barker on it. And we mixed, we co-mixed a lot of that album together. And then actually Serban mixed the two hits. And then Serban's son, who's actually, I don't know if you guys is, is a mixer now. I didn't know that. And he mixed, yeah, yeah, and he's he's killing it, and he uh, he mixed the other a couple of the songs in that record too. It's just kind of the way it is, you know. They send the hits to the hit guys. You got the singles, and then the the B sides, should we say? Is it a case of mm. getting an opportunity like that with a label? Is a obviously been on the label's radar, but getting your chance because the celebrity guy can do two tracks, the B guy can do three tracks, or or they're not even around and they go down a list and a bit like a depth gig in a band, you're kind of somewhere down the list maybe and you hope that there's enough people busy enough on a day so that you get yeah, the call. It, it could be like that and i think too it's like um a lot of times it comes down to budget right 
Mm, My okay. rate and Serban's rate are very different. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, like, they might pay the, the, the one they're going to do hits. Let's pay the guy that's mixed the hits for the last 20 years to make the hit, you know? Mm. And then we'll pay the, the newer guys or the, the lower-end guys to do the rest of the record. I think the way to get a hit, and this is something I, I, I don't do as much as I should, and, 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 you know, Jay mentioned this, is to find your vessel. Yeah. And and, mm-hmm. and and what that is, is you find artists. I, I have a couple artists I work with who I, who I really like, and we just work for free. And we, we, we're working on getting them 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 to the promised land, whatever that may be for them, right? Um, and that's worked for me. I've worked with two artists that got signed, and, you know, it paid off. That's the way to get your hit, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still working on it, but, like, if you come in with the record and it's already mixed, the labels love that. They can just release it and push it, right? So... If one of those records hits, then then that could be your 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 snowball for the next level. Like I, I'm trying to get to that level of making, you know, just mixing hit records. You know, it'd be fantastic. But on, in, in reality, there's like six guys that do it in the whole world, and I'm not crazy. one of them yet. You know, and it's crazy how there's like really six guys. Like yeah. so you can sit them around yeah. the tea table. That's genuinely like right, the right, bit right. guys. It's crazy. So I try not to focus on that because that will drive you freaking insane. I just focus on. <laughs> Helping the next artist I can help, and whether it's independent or if it's a major label, I don't honestly care. And mm-hmm. I, I know it sounds crazy, but I almost prefer working with independents. It's just less stress, yeah. And I'm, it's, it's, it's a happier time for me. But you know, the label stuff is what, like, you know, you work on a certain record that gets some, some recognition. That helps bring in a whole bunch of work from the independent side. You know, it's all like I said, it's like whatever you last work on is your, your, your resume in this business. You know. So, Matty, what would you look for in a young up-and-coming engineer if you were to refer someone for a job you couldn't do or, or the budget was too low for you? At what point yeah, would you say, I, I know this guy? I mean, I think that the two most important things is obviously that the mixes sound good that he's done previously, right? I mean, that's part of the thing. But I think, you know, like 50% of this is is being a good mixer. And, and you know, once you get past the technical side, I don't care which compressor I use. If mm. I need to compress something, I'll use an R compressor. You know what I mean? Like, that stuff doesn't necessarily matter. It's it's just like, you know, do you know how to use a tool and when to use the tool? And and, and you know, that can be heard in people's mixes. And then the other thing, which I think is almost important, more important than how good of a mixer you are is how good of a person you are, right? Are you friendly? Are you easy to get along with? Are you going to make the project like a good project and make everyone you're working with happy? Go the extra mile for whatever they need. If you're on, if they need 17 for revisions to get to that end, and you're still as happy on version 17 as you were on version one, like that's the way you do it, you know? They're unicorns, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I can get but, to I mean, 15. That's, <laughs> that, that's the way, and that's the people I, whoever's going to go the extra mile. Honestly, a lot of work, like I think it's what brings people back or not back, because there's a lot of great mixers out here. You know, all three of us could mix a song and they all sound good, I think. I can get really angry with revisions, <laughs> like revisions are like the enemy. <laughs> But like I've learned over the years, like, dude, it's just revisions, like just get over yourself and like just try to make it like what they want, you know, like and and still make it sound somewhat decent. So I think it's just being able to be like, you know, positive through the whole project from the beginning to the end is almost as important, if not more important than how good of a mixer you are. So would you say it's almost like you need to have, I take it there's a mixer's mindset kind of going into this. There is actually a mindset that you have to kind of develop to kind of do this as a living yeah i mean i think we have to be psychiatrists you know like <laughs> yeah. we have to deal with people who are maybe like 
scared about releasing their music or people who are super egotistical about releasing their music. We deal with people who think engineers are scum of the earth. We deal with people who think engineers are the greatest person ever. You know what I mean? We deal with all these different people. And the music business has got, you know, like, a lot of us got some screws loose, you know? I'm not going to, like, sugarcoat it. Like, we're not all, like, the like, most sane bunch, you know? And so you're dealing with all kinds of crazy stuff. And I've seen wild stuff through the years um, of notes and, and personalities. And, and, and you just got to be ready for any of it and just stay positive throughout you know I, I think that's just a big key to it all have you ever had moments in your career where you've kind of sat back and you've thought this just isn't going well like you've given like revision after revision after revision after revision and the artist or the a and r just they're just not feeling it and like how do you deal with that pressure that and to keep that motivation of okay i'll get there in the end because i can imagine at times especially at the start it, could be pretty hard to kind of pick yourself up from the canvas like a lot of the time. Yeah. Like this this job isn't for the week. Like <laughs> like there's for instance, here's an example. Like I worked on this song and we got to like revision seven. This guy was sending me, I mean, pages and notes. And I was doing everything I can to like make this thing work, you know? And then like he was happy with it. And then he just I got this email, like, this is just not the mix. I'm not I can't like just you're a terrible mixer you're the worst human on earth you know whatever some craziness right and then three months later he's like i was having a bad time and i'm really sorry we ended up using your mix and would you like to mix another song (laughs) where i politely said no (laughs) because i don't want to deal with that again right but like it took a long long time and i'm not there yet but i've really gotten to the point where it's like you cannot take any of this personal Mm -hmm. how someone feels about your mix has no reflection of how good of a human i am inside right and and i know that sounds really deep but like when you love mixing and music so much that like someone sends you like eh, you know it's good but it's not great note it could devastate me for days when i would ever get one of Mm -hmm. those you know what i mean it would just be like fuck dude i suck you know (laughs) and like and i would like just bring me down you know what i mean now i've gotten to the point where i've done this long enough that those happen like every i would say every four months you get one of these where it's not working or you know whatever and it's it's not always like that's why i say i don't take it personal anymore because i've realized 80 percent of the time it's not me it's it's usually them Mm -hmm. it's something wrong like with how they feel about their music or it's not what they want it to be and they think that me as the mixer is going to solve the production issues the 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 fact that you can't even sing issues the whatever the issues it is right (laughs) and i can't i can only mix the record like mixing isn't everything you know Mm -hmm. so i i've just kind of gotten the realization of that and then as you said like if it gets to a point where like it's 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 just not working you don't feel it's working i've like come to the point where I don't want to deal with that headache. And I know you as a client doesn't either. Mm. And if I really feel like this mix is going to go, I go, look, man, no hard feelings, but I don't think I'm the guy for this job. Yeah. Here's all your money back. Go find someone that's going to help you with the song. Cause as I want you to succeed, I don't want to be the problem, you know, mm-hmm. and that do the, the relief by doing that sometimes. And, and like I said, that happens twice a year, maybe, maybe not even that, but the relief of being able to do that is huge, man. It's like, I left this situation in a good place. Like I gave the guy everything he started with back. I said, go find your guy. 
And I, I still kept the whole situation, you know, in a positive way, you mm -hmm. know. Do you find there's so, a, an interesting correlation between how good someone is and how demanding they are? I know from a live sound point of view, the great musicians who had their sound together, they could perform, they were comfortable with having no monitoring. You know, it, it didn't matter to them. They were so good, they could adapt regardless. Whereas the guy, you could give guys the best stereo in ear mix and if, they haven't got their stuff together and they can't <laughs> sing. Was Singers were usually the problem. Um, right. <laughs> they would be the ones complaining. And, and, and I'd listen into mixes and be like, dude, you have no idea how lucky you are to get this stereo mix so carefully yeah. balanced, EQ to your in-ear monitors, because I know that monitor profile. And you're still complaining. Like, I'm yeah. not the problem here. Do you find there's a proportion between ability and divaness, should we say? I would say that's eighty percent true. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, that's crazy. I I I find that the songs that are not in in my eyes finished maybe will end up getting the most notes, and it's like we're trying to fix something, you know, that that isn't to be fixed in mixing, you know. But can you not put a producer hat on there? Are you comfortable coming out of the mix engineer role? and saying, okay, I'm offering a service here, but actually maybe if we communicate, maybe this needs a keys pad. What are the chords? Yeah. I can record that for you. Or um, may maybe th there's too many parts. The track coming up next week that Paul and I have mixed, I deleted a part and I edited a couple of parts out because it was just guitar stuff all over the place. I was like, this yeah. doesn't work. It's distracting. It's too much. Yeah, I do. I, I definitely think there's a, a great opportunity to, to be had if, if you can like you know communicate with the artist like maybe this doesn't work or maybe that was, and that works sometimes. And then sometimes people are just set on that song being the way mm -hmm. it is. And it's yeah. like, that's yeah. a great idea, but no, you know, like I always think it's worth it. If you really think something's going to make it better to try it and then they might not like it. And that's another time when you just don't take it personal. All right, cool. We'll just put yeah. the files back the way it was and nobody. You know, yeah. I guess it's no about luck. communication, but, but also, um, been aware and, and I know this from doing my own stuff, just how easy it is. You get so used to hearing something. You can't take that's, yourself out of that box. That's a big problem now, too. And I yeah. think that's quite interesting, having that experience of myself when I'm listening to other people play stuff. I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. Not, I've heard it this way a million times. It's hard to hear it and understand it and appreciate it this way that I'm hearing for the first time. So, yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah, and that's a big problem these days. I mean, like, everyone's so used to the rough mix. And, and I, this is even, I would say, almost more so in the major label world where everyone's been listening to the rough mix for so long and... You change it too much, and it's you're gonna get some bad notes back. <laughs> like I've been there, you know. So that, that yeah, yeah, like that's for me. In the last four years, has been the biggest learning experience of that, where things have changed, and it's like, how do you keep it the rough mix but better? You know what I mean? And that's taken a lot of like learning from working with artists to find the, like how far to push certain songs, mm -hmm. how far to push them like in a, in a good way, or, or are you taking it too far from what they envisioned, you know? And that, that takes a lot of practice, I think, to learn where that medium is. And, you know, I'm, for each artist, what it is, you know? I think that's one of the biggest struggles in, 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 in mixing these days right now. I, I have to ask you, right? Because you're in this world, Dolby Atmos, is it here, right? Is it here? Because I, I mean, I'm on Tidal and I'm looking on the Dolby Atmos and I'm listening to them and I'm like, right, okay, big artist, big artist, big artist, big artist, big artist. They've all got Atmos mixes, right? So is Dolby Atmos here? I, I don't know, man. I, I, it's here for major labels right, right now. Right, okay. I don't think it's here for the independents at all. Right, okay. I've had two artists in the last year ask me on the independent side, 
for a Dolby mix, you know? And uh, one of my friends is like one of the bigger Dolby guys in, in Mexico, actually. And um, that's all he does now is Dolby Atmos mm -hmm. mixing. Uh, all the label stuff down there. And, and he does some stuff up, uh, from the States as well. He's been telling me, you know, like, it's still happening, obviously. But it wasn't like it was a year and a half right, ago. Okay. So actually, like, I was getting a little bit. We're going to Dolby, <laughs> like everything. Like, you know, and you went to Nam, and it was like, Dolby. It was and mental. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was nuts. And these speaker companies love it, you know what I mean? But yep. I, I don't know. I, I still don't know, man. The verdict's still out for me. I just can't tell if it's going to go there or not. I, I personally feel it's a, a thing Apple wants us to do mm -hmm. so they can sell more headphones. I, I really think that's why it's happened. I don't, you know, Spotify still isn't on board yeah, with it. But and, I don't think the Bobby, I, I don't think they're going to move from the looks of it. Yeah. And I mean, and just to get, I think, high res, I don't know if it's been out yet, but they're going to charge you more for a, a higher quality. Yeah. I know, think they delayed the it song. again. Yeah. Did they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, no one wants to pay more for that. No. And this is the sad part, is the average listener probably couldn't tell you if they're listening to a Dolby mix or a stereo <laughs> mix. <true. laughs> I mean, they just can't, you know? I like my wife, who isn't a musician and, you know, doesn't care about this stuff at all, which is probably why I love her. <laughs> I said, listen to this new Dolby thing. And, like, she's like, what? What?" It was, like, some weekend song that she knew. And she's like, well, what is it? Like... What's it, what am I listening for? You know, like, what do we, I'm like, you don't hear it. Like the synth went across your head and it was really cool. And she's like, nah, like it's just the weekend song. And okay. Where, the, so where I do think this could change is with these new Apple vision goggles coming out Yeah. and meta and all this world, not that we're there yet, but in 10 years, now that's where maybe it all starts coming into play where you're, in a virtual world with the music all around mm. you and and that's when it could get cool and 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 maybe more useful and i maybe my other you know idea of other than apple wanting to sell more headphones is them pushing us for that world you know yeah that we're all being pushed into next is with the, the virtual worlds we'll be living in in 10 years you know and and that is where maybe the dolby stuff makes more sense you know what's your thoughts on it in regards to experiencing experiencing it in like an actual like dolby room i, mean, I think it's cool you yeah. know and it's like wow this is like incredible but it doesn't translate to the headphone no, not mix. at all no that doesn't and and like and and it's the same thing when five one came out. Like no one's gonna be able. To, like no, I do. I can barely set up my speakers in a perfect triangle. Like you think like Joe Schmo is gonna be able to set a seven point one point four room up in his living room? Like it's just <laughs> no. not gonna happen, you know. <laughs> and so like who's gonna experience that? Just us, you know. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, I, I don't think it's gonna last. But if they get the headphone thing better and and it does get better supposedly, you know, that's the only way I think. Dolby could survive is, is in headphones, you yeah. know, it's, it's not going to be, you know, and although like I have the Singe speakers, C-Y-N-G. Yeah. And you only need four to get 7.1.4. So maybe if, if they can find a way to do that, so you only need a couple speakers to get it and they, they shoot out different speakers from one stand. Mm-hmm then maybe you could get it in living rooms and stuff. Because I do um, think, but I just got sent the, and Ed's, Ed's, as your Sony's came yet, the, the MV1s. I believe they're on their way. Right, because what's interesting. MV1s. Yeah, because I was interested to get them. Because my Atmos room's nearly finished, I was like, right, I need to maybe start listening to kind of how some yeah. of the immersive mixes simmed. And I was listening to Atmos, and I was listening to Sony 365, and there is a definite sim difference. 
But what's really yeah. interesting about um, the measurements of the Sony headphones, what they've got to do to try and get some form of the sound in headphones is it's quite crazy. Like the, the frequency response of the Sony's in the high end, it's got a big dip and then a big boost and then another like big dip. And I was speaking oh. to a few engineers and they were like, I think it's because the ceiling speakers or whatever it is in Dolby Atmos, there's a recessed high end or something like that. Um, and I was listening to the Sony's going, this is probably the closest that you're going to get, but I know it's not Dolby Atmos or it's not Sony right. 365 because you've not got the ceiling speakers. Like That's one thing. Headphones right. can't do that over your head. And I mean, it is impressive what I do, and I actually do enjoy listening to a really good Dolby Atmos mix or a good, really good Sony 365 mix on these Sony headphones, but I know it's still just like a diluted, very diluted version of what it version, actually yeah. is. But um, that, that brings me on as I'm speaking about headphones. Um, do you mix on headphones ever, or are you mainly a speaker guy, or do you just kind of go on the cans just to kind of give you a bit of a binaural check? Yeah, I'm mostly a speaker guy. Um, I do, I do, do, I do like listen to the final mix in, in cans. Um, I have the key three speakers, and what's interesting about them is like. They sound really close to headphones. I don't oh, know yeah. why. I mean, not, I wouldn't say close to headphones, but they just translate to headphones super well. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe because the, the way the cardioid thing happens with the bass, that it's so directional mm -hmm. to to me. And that's kind of like how headphones are. Yeah. Um, but they translate really well to headphones. But yeah, I do check. And I've done a few mixes just in headphones. And they've translated okay. I got the Odyssey's uh, LCD-5s. And then these are the LCD-1s, which I travel with. I actually sometimes like these a bit better. Yeah, I've done a few mixes in it, and I've done, I'll do revisions in them if I'm on the road. Um, but I'm not fully there as to just mixing in headphones yet. How how long did it take you um, to get the translation right for you? Because <laughs> I think that I'm, I'm yeah. only getting to the point now where I'm like happy with my translation to monitors, like mixing on headphones. Again, I don't give a shit about the car. I don't know. I don't really do the car test, but. Um, um, on that's this the phone that's the one thing that's still great in me and i think we were me and ed were talking about mono compatibility and like like how long did it take you to kind of get that translation to other systems down and how you deal with mono compatibility because I, th I think ed would be yeah. quite interested on that one wouldn't you ed you know i'm like <laughs> one of the like the old school guys where i just don't care i just like yeah I make it sound as good as it can on these speakers and whatever happens to it once it hits the wild is what happens to it. Right. But like, I, I trust my room so much mm. now and I've done enough mixes in here that I know it's going to sound pretty dang close to the way I got it sound in here when it hits, when it gets out there. Right. Mm. There was a point, was it three or four years ago where Instagram was doing, and I can't remember now, but Instagram was doing something weird to the music. Still does. Uh, it still sounds weird to me. Audio yeah, sounds yeah, really yeah. weird. It was clipping or switching it to mono in uh, Android phones or something. And, and that's the only time I started going down like the rabbit hole of like the phone and what social media yeah. is doing to it. I mean, what like, you know, uh, Instagram's doing to it or something. I just find like if I if I start focusing on like what it's going to sound like through Instagram, then I'm going to lose perspective yeah. of like this, just the song, you know, and it's just I just find if I get it sound as good as I can through these speakers, it's usually going to translate decently to everything else mm. so are you an lcr kind of man or do you um like to kind of have your panning like quite sparse and you use the whole 
the whole spectrum or are you like a, an LCR mixer? I use the whole spectrum, yeah. A lot of times you, you're getting a lot of synths that are already super stereo anyway, mm-hmm. you know? And if, if you move them, the artist is like, what? Like, <laughs> like why is that over there now? You know, like I feel like when you're mixing um, more uh, organic music or rock or I've been doing some country lately, which is so much fun, you can really work with panning a lot more than you can if you're working on a pop or, or, or hip-hop song. So I think it's just I got to know when when to move something <laughs> and when not to, you know. See, on the country records, because me and Ed done a record uh, last week, and we took two yeah. very different approaches. And Ed took kind of the modern country approach, which was basically like layering a ton of samples. Um, and I yeah. took the very natural approach of, right, again, it was like 47s on the kicks and stuff. And I took the original kit and I just tried to make that. I used samples, but it was very, very light. Um, now, uh-huh. we, were, then we were talking about country and how it does sound very, very sample-centric. And there's a few songs mm. just now where the snares are like, doo, doo, doo. So say when you get these country uh, records, are a lot of the samples already kind of given to you or do you use a lot of samples if you do these country records? Like, how does it work? Yeah, I usually get just the drum set, but I definitely always add samples Mm -hmm. uh, to the kick and the snare. Every once in a while I'll do toms if they're just maybe recorded badly, but it's definitely always some samples on the kick and the snare. It just just elevates it so much that I, I, I wouldn't want to do it without it. I mean, now there are times where it just doesn't work, but I find more times than not, I have samples uh, being used for the for the you know the songs I'm mixing. And how anal are you as a drummer? Because Ed is very anal with his drums, and every drummer I've ever spoken to that does mixing is very anal about timing, very anal about the drums. Um, is that something that you still have today, where you're all about the timing and like the drums are such a massive focal point, or is it something that you kind of relaxed? A, a little bit over time or are you like ed and you're a still a drum my, my thing is I, it always has to be in drummer's perspective yeah like i hate it when i get a when the files are sent i'm like god damn they did audience perspective like it has to be the drummer's perspective <laughs> and, and some records i will just switch everything around and make a drummer's perspective <laughs> like i'm so like adamant about that part if you ever yeah, swapped a I track mean, around and had a client call you out on it I have had it one time, like, really? but, but it's, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like, oh, the drums feel different. Like, they couldn't place what it was, but they knew something was different. Oh, well, if and they couldn't went, tell you exactly what it was, fuck them. <laughs> yeah, I know. So then I, I switched it and sent it back. They're like, yes, that's it. Like, Ah, right, you know, okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, our, 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 our we're so technical, but our artists are just listening, you know, mm. and that's why I have, like, I have a thing where I can shut my screen off and I just listen. Mm. And that makes just such a difference. And also, I don't know if you guys can see, but I have a, uh, a pair of Cali speakers set up back here, um, Cali Audio. And I that is actually, when you said like translating, that is something I actually do. And I it's just a pair of speakers set up on the back wall. And I go sit there when my mix is almost done and I just listen to the mix. Mm-hmm. And there's something about no screen in front of you and no mouse or keyboard to touch that I can just all these little things will come up or, or maybe none, but some things will come up that I was just absolutely not hearing in front of the Pro Tools screen over here. And I don't know why that is, but there's something about just like, you know, you remove yourself from the screen of Pro Tools and you just hear, you start hearing it like the listener and not the engineer, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's been a really cool thing is just to have another pair of speakers on the other side of the room where you just listen to the mix 
and or listen to the song, not the mix. You know, just some things you might not have heard will just pop right out. It's really wild. It's almost like I know, like when you work, you work on a mix, then you close it, and you come back the day later or yeah, the hours later, ears. yeah, open it back. Oh wow! Like it's kind of like fresh ears. Like it's like a, a hack. The Working Audio Tools podcast is brought to you in association with our friends at DistroKid for all of your musical distribution needs. For a little bit more, $39.99 a month, you can have two artists on your roster, which includes everything just mentioned. Additionally, synced lyrics in Apple Music, further streaming analytics statistics, you can create a customizable record name. Mine, for example, is Ed Thorne Rhythm and Records. And you can customize release dates, pre-order dates, iTunes pricing, and again, much more. Now, if you're an artist manager or a record label, the Ultimate Bundle gives you up to 100 artists for just $89.99 a year. And you get one terabyte of instant file sharing, which is useful, but also contact information for thousands of playlist curators on Spotify. This is really useful so you can pitch your artist music to playlist curators around the world, only available in the Ultimate Bundle from DistroKid. Did you have any pivotal experiences in your earlier career where something happened and you were maybe schooled or you had your eyes open in a certain way by someone that at the time felt horribly bitter and demoralizing, but actually in hindsight you realize was a real pivotal experience for you? Hmm. That's kind of a dark question there. Let me... Uh, we throw it to know, every guest. Moving, <laughs> yeah, moving, moving to LA was probably the darkest period of my life the second year I was here. And just understanding that the business is completely different here and also understanding that just because you got the ticket to LA doesn't mean you've made it in any sort of way. Mm. You know, like some people are like, oh, you get signed and it's like, you're there. I kind of believe the dream a little bit too. And and we got out of here and I thought we'd made it or made it or whatever, you know, I think we all have to figure out what made it is in our head for us. Realizing like, <laughs> once again, almost like when I went from drumming in, in, in New England to drumming in Berkeley, going from Boston to LA was like a whole nother thing mm. of like, dude, you ain't, you ain't nobody. And yeah, it's kind of like start all over again out here, you know? To be fair, it's a very tough question and we always really <laughs> we is. always just put it right in there <laughs> without you expecting. I know, it's like, what is the darkest moment of your life? <laughs> do, you, do you have an assistant or do you do everything yourself? I mostly do everything myself. I have had some in the, year, uh, in the past, but honestly, SoundFlow has is, is kind of um, taken that job. It just, you can do so much with SoundFlow now. Uh, do you guys, have you guys used, are you, I don't know if you guys, are you guys Pro Tools guys or? I was, no, but not, I not moved yet. to Studio One. But are you thinking uh, about, are you thinking about I... moving to Pro Tools, Ed? I'm researching the potential, yeah. Oh, or at least I need to be controversial, fluid. Controversial, controversial, Mr. Thorne. I mean, I, so I, I was a Pro Tools guy all my, I grew up on Pro Tools. I switched to Studio One. I remember one that. I remember that. My videos. Yeah. And then I, I had this like period of like third party plugins not working with Studio One. Mm. And I was like, I cannot work this way. And I went back to Pro Tools just for the stability of it. Now, some people have told me Studio One's gotten better, but I don't know. Once they came out with SoundFlow, I just feel like it's the best it can be right now. Okay, so just a broad near the end, but I think it would be quite interesting. To, um, what is SoundFlow? Because I actually don't know what it is. Okay, so it's it's this company that came out, and they the guys who started are awesome, but they, they, they were mostly post-audio guys, make movie mm-hmm. audio stuff. And they, they started making these, like, they, they call them scripts, basically, which can do a bunch of things in Pro Tools, right? So, like, 
I have one that will color code to set up a session, right? Mm -hmm. I, I color code my different instrument groups yeah. and send them to, I, I run all mine through like some sort of bus, like the music bus, drum mm -hmm. bus, percussion bus, stuff like that. So I can select all the tracks, hit a button, it will color code them and route the output to that bus just with one button, right? Mm -hmm. And then it has uh, a whole, well, there's this program, Andrew Schweppes uses it too. It's called Bounce Factory. And I can, you know, select tracks and just hit a button and my stems will print while I go have lunch, you right. know? Did, didn't Andrew write these... that script? I think he wrote that software He probably, himself. yeah, he did with some of the guys, I think, uh, that own the company. Right. Um, and, they mentioned uh, that at NAMM. Yeah, yeah. I was like, you That's nerd. Yeah, I know. He's, <laughs> no, he's, Come on, Paul, what are you playing at? <laughs> yeah. Where's your yeah, app? Mine would be, mate, mine would be the fucking longest script I've ever seen. Even the app would be <laughs> yeah. like, no, I'm done, Paul, fuck off. No, shut <laughs> <Yeah>. down, shut <laughs> down. Yeah. But yeah, and like, you know, like 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 uh, like uh for, for AB and the rough mixes, I use metric AB. And so I have a button that just opens that up and like switches it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like you can do whatever you want with these scripts. So the only problem I have now with Pro Tools is this that they're not like like I'm a fan of the soft tube console one stuff. Mm -hmm. And like and some of and some things like that that you just can't freaking use yeah. as well as you can with Studio One. So I am checking out Cubase right now. Oh, yeah. Just a little FYI. Yeah, just to see what it does. Because it's interesting so. because I know a lot of guys that are Cubase users and they'll say to me, Paul, like Cubase and Studio One are like so close together. Yeah, I've had no issues with Studio One so far, um, and and That's they're awesome. wait, they're waiting to send me the Fader Port Sixteen and stuff like that, just because I want I yeah. miss I'm like yourself with the uh, with the soft tube, I miss the hands on. I don't I miss it even from yeah. my college days. There's just something that I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get yeah. bored with the mouse. I am like my friends, like some of my engineer buddies think I'm like laughing me. I probably I I am like obsessed with controllers. Yeah. Like I have all the, I have. You've got the SSL one, sorry, don't you? I do. Yeah. I sold the SSL oh, did you one. Sell the SSL that one. Annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I do have the console one. I have a couple of the Avid ones. What else do I have? Oh, I have oh, the the um the Rock Solid Audio one's really cool too. I have that one. Uh, I have way too many controllers. In <laughs> right, Ed. I would say that it's been another fantastic episode. And again, I I am amazed in an hour and sixteen minutes we've been able to cram so much. I think as we've been able to cram. Probably the most we ever have in an episode. Yeah. So I would say, honestly, props, props to you, Matty, for giving yeah, us the gold. Um, but again, thank you so yeah, much no, for man. your time. Again, I know, like, again, you're all so unbelievably busy. Uh, it's been great having you on. Uh, thank you again. Yeah. A wealth, a wealth um, of knowledge here. So, um, hey, what's man, what's right. the plans for um, for you in the future? Have you got any plans YouTube wise? Are you kind of are you kind of seeing yourself maybe taking a back seat on YouTube? Are you still going for it or? What's your plans? Future plans? I like I have fun. So YouTube for me is, was a hobby at the whole yeah. beginning of it, and it was a way for me to give back, like the guys that I learned from in the studios. Now, a lot of times I'm just farting around with new plugins on mm. YouTube, so it's not. I don't know how much that's giving back. I feel like I like to hope that like the plugin, because you know, like a plugin review does way better than you talking oh, about yeah. some far off concept. So I've tried to make it so when I do a plugin review, it like I, I'm teaching something yeah. too, and I don't know if that translates or not. But I'm hoping it does. I like doing it, man. It's just fun, you know what I mean? And it's a cool way to talk to people yeah. and keep your name out in the circles. And 
So yeah, I'm I'm still trying. I I shoot for a video a week, but it never actually happens. <laughs> yeah, she's trying to do a video a week. It's just like it's so yeah. hard. Yeah, it's, it's like hard. Yeah. It's it hard. Is hard. Yeah, yeah. trying to earn a living yeah. as well. I know. So I just uh, it's usually every other uh, other week I can pull something off. And um, and you've even I love the fact that we've all got our own little catchphrases as well. Eh? It's like <laughs> yours is the yeah, most. I've yeah. got hello. You want let's go. <laughs> Ed, have you got yeah, go. have you got a catchphrase? Ed, I don't actually think you do. Do you? Mine's it's been emotional. Oh yeah, it's been emotional. which is oh, proof yeah. that you never get to the end of my videos. There we go. <laughs> Paul admitted it live what, on air. Don't and, you fucking dare say it. And know what, guys? No, actually, come on. That's a lie. I watch all of your videos. I get. You know what? I'm the, I'm probably the only guy that watches your videos all the way through. It. You know that? I keep. I'm the <laughs> one keeping your. I'm the one keeping your attention up, right? Right. Just from always like remember videos, that. The, the honesty in Ed's videos is what everyone needs. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that. Like, I think that's something that we have all kind of came to the point where we we have realised the importance of honesty, transparency, yeah. and you yeah. know, just just being honest with people. And no, if someone sucks, then it sucks. You know what I mean? It is what it yeah. is. If someone's brilliant, then it's brilliant, and that's what it's all about. On that bombshell, ladies, gentlemen, no, 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 no. and thems. That, no, that'll, that be, that'll be a shit edit for you. That'll be a shit edit for you to, to put in. That wasn't going to work. On that bombshell, it's been emotional. A big thank you to Matty for sharing his experience from the other side of the pond all the way over in LA. Thanks again to Paul. Thanks again to myself. It's been emotional. Did I say that? I probably did. See you next time. Bye-bye.